main activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Eerie Americas. This is one of your hosts, Vicky Ayala. And this is your other host, Christy Hall. What's up, guys? If we sound kind of blah, we are. I feel like the weather in New York, gloomy. Here it's snowing and it's spring, so I'm even worse. Played around on my Instagram today and I put a very dramatic Spanish song that only my Latino friends would fully understand. Oh, yeah. I was just like, I had listened, so I had put it on. But my sound was off, but I saw the song in the corner and I was like, yep, I already know what song this is. And for further evidence, you know, for our active listeners, you guys know we use our platform here to kind of talk about how unfortunate we are. And there's always evidence we could look. We got more evidence for you. A week after we had more evidence for you. <laughs> and it all, it started with me. Mine was pretty simple. Vicky's was way more worse than mine was. But of course, um, today we are you know, recording this episode, and I'm sitting here editing last minute stuff, you know, doing the things you're supposed to do as a proper podcaster. And I've been sneezing as a result of the change in the weather. You guys know between my allergies and drops in weather, this is always what happens. I just get instantly, instantly sick. And um, I'm sneezing, I'm sneezing, I'm sneezing during the middle of the editing. All of a sudden, it feels like a mosquito landed in the inside of my lip and just bit down for its life. And I was like, it's this Hank Hill, King of the Hill scream. And Charlie's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I feel like something just attacked my lip. And he's like, what attacked your lip? And he looks and it is like the size of a blister. He's like, it looks like it's blistering. I realized in the middle of my sneeze, I must have bit down on my upper lip. It's like where my fang is. When I say it looks like I got uppercut soccer punched, I'm not joking. That's what my lip looks like right now. Welcome to our lives where you hurt yourself sneezing. You would think that I got into a fight. That's how swollen my lip looks. Well, you did with your sneeze and your allergies and the weather. It looks better, but it looked, it, it really did. Like, it looked like a huge blister at first. And I'm like, it's still kind of there. Do that. Yeah, no, it's still kind of there, but way better than when you first showed me. I'm like, how does one even do that, much less sneezing? Yeah, that's been my life today. And then pr- the previous day, Vicky sends me a picture of her arm in a sling. And I'm like, what did you do? A week after I didn't know how I scratched my cornea. Um, I woke up, We are, it, today is Friday, I woke up, I believe it was Wednesday, and um, you guys all know by now that I have three autoimmune diseases and the main one is lupus, so I woke up and I had a lot of pain in my elbow, but it wasn't like regular lupus pain where everything was achy, it like literally hurt, I couldn't extend it, I couldn't really like fold it either in certain ways, I had to like hold it in a really weird position, and so I was like, alright, this is fun, but the weather's been kind of crappy, and I was like, maybe it is lupus related, I didn't hit it. Then again, you guys know I also managed to scratch my cornea without knowing. So I was like, oh, maybe I did hit my elbow and I didn't know. So I just gave it a day. I took some Tylenol. I took Advil. I iced it. I did everything. I woke up yesterday on Thursday and it was even worse. Telling my husband, I was like, Ryan, I'm going to urgent care. And like, I go to urgent care so often that they recognize me. And so the doctor comes in and I'm just like, you know, this is what happened. And she looks at it. She's like, yep, I can see it's swollen. She's like, any, like, you know, did you hit it? I was like, nope. She was like, okay, so there's no trauma to it. So we don't have to take an x-ray. And she was like, um, I'm going to order an ultrasound stat. And I'm just like, okay, I know what stat means. I know that means like urgent right now, but why am I getting an ultrasound? She's like, oh, well, we have to rule out a blood clot. So I'm just like, what? I just thought I was going to go in there. She's going to look at it. She was going to give me some medication. I was going to go. Not for you. Not for me. And I'm just like, well, shit. 
And so they don't do the ultrasounds at that city MD. She's like, all right, we have to send you to another office. Just sit in the front. We'll make an appointment for you. The girl, so I'm thinking like, I'm going to go in a couple of days. It's not that urgent. The girl's like, yeah, they're expecting you right now. Jeez. That doctor must be best friends with that other doctor. Yeah, they apparently like everything coming from City MD is stat. So I get there. You guys know I'm not an emotional person, but I'm so overwhelmed. And, you know, you guys also know that this last week was very difficult with the one year of my mom's passing. I just started crying. And the woman's like looking at me and I'm like, I'm so sorry that I'm crying. And she was just like, it's okay. I'm like, I'm just so overwhelmed. Like I was just being like, so, like it was just bad. So she does the ultrasound. She she really did make me feel better. She talked me through it. She was like, it's going to be okay. And I was like, what happens if I have a blood clot? She's like, we're not going to jump to conclusions. But if you do, and you ha- and we'll oh, like I always say when it comes to doctors, they, they think of the worst thing first jump to that kind of conclusion because they're training right because because if that's what you're telling me i'm ruling out i'm like oh my god i have blood clot she I, I, I go to the front she's like go home we'll call you within the hour they actually called me while i was in the uber home and it was a very quick uber ride because it was right near my neighborhood like where i live and the and the doctor's like okay you don't have a blood clot that's really good news this is probably this is lupus related it's like bursitis like you just have inflammation but i sent you a medication you cannot take it because it interacts with your lupus meds i'm like great so what am i supposed to do she's like contact your rheumatologist make sure what's safe for you to take contact my rheumatologist she's like you can take ibuprofen or advil i'm like so basically i just spent all of this time crying freaking out Going to two different offices, getting an ultrasound, all for you to tell me to take some Advil and wait for it to pass. And that's basically what happened. I'm just like, I'm so glad because I also had to pay two copays. I had to pay two Ubers. So I'm like, so $26 in Ubers later, $30 in copays later, and you told me to take an Advil that's sitting on my counter, on my counter already. And then, you know what's funny? You guys know I went last week for my cornea. The next day after I went to urgent care, my cornea cleared up. Like, it's, it got a lot better naturally. I woke up today. My elbow's a lot better. It's not great. It's still a little swollen, a little painful. But I'm like, wh- I'm like, you know, from now on, I'm waiting an extra fucking day. The body knows how to heal itself. It, it does. does. I keep on going one day too early, and it would have saved me. Like, it, honestly, I don't care about the money. It was very scary. I spent two years going to the doctors with my mother, getting bad news. You told me that I could have had a blood clot in my head. I'm thinking, oh my God, I have fucking blood. Like, I was so upset. And I'm like, all of that, all of that trauma for me to like, get better the next day naturally. So from now on, I'm not going to urgent care until the third day that I feel sick. Because I keep going one day too early. So maybe next time I'll just wake up and it's cleared. I'm all right though. I'm not even wearing the sling today. Both survive. At the end of the day, you guys know we're. At, is what's funny is I still feel like, despite our complaining, we're still optimists because the we're, we we still get up the right. next day. We shrug it off and we make jokes about it. I yes, I cried to a stranger. Sometimes you gotta do that though. Sometimes you gotta do that. I actually got a text message from a friend. I, it's a good friend, a good fan of the podcast, and he is a counselor. Oh, well, he's a social worker in school, and he wants me to make a PSA. Okay, here's the PSA because I know we have some young fans who have recently started listening to us. And maybe you haven't listened to all of our episodes, or maybe you haven't listened closely enough. Stop summoning spirits. Don't use a fucking Ouija board. Don't make a pendulum. Stop it. Because I'm going to read you some of the stuff that happened during a counseling session between my friend. Just like a mother. I said, stop stop it. it. Stop it. Because I will do an episode on you. <laughs> so this student made a pendulum. And it's like, oh, but that's where I messed up. Yes, that is where you messed up, young lady. That is exactly where you messed up. And I can say things like young lady because I'm old now. Yes, you whippersnapper. So 
my friend texted me. He's like, she made a pendulum, but said that's where she messed up. And I literally answered back, she messed up doing all of this. Apparently, the blender turned on by itself and it wasn't even plugged in. What? Okay. Doors were opening and closing. And then she, apparently she got rid of it with Sage, but now she's really scared. Yeah, because it's a spirit and you summoned it. And it's usually not good spirits that come through pendulums That's and true. Ouija boards. So for the last fucking time, stop summoning spirits. Don't do it. Don't do it because I promise you that when something really crazy happens, I will cover your case on this podcast and I won't even feel bad about it. I feel like I have to do another like Ouija board episode to really get it through the heads. Like to please, please, please stop with the Ouija boards. I have, I still have material from the last episode that I covered. I have a whole bunch of stories there. And that was like, what, two, almost two years ago at this point. I'm pretty sure I have two years worth of stories. And I'm sure a lot of people were home during the pandemic just summoning up spirits because they were freaking bored. For Stop real. doing it. Don't go looking for it because you're not going to like it. And luckily, she was able to get rid of it with Sage because that doesn't always work. And you could have had a whole spirit, two spirits, three spirits. Turning your blender on, like turning your blender on and off when it's not plugged in. Do you know how much energy that takes? That's not, that's like a demon right there. You, you summoned a fucking Good demon. Good job. No matter where you live while you are listening to this, I think we can all have one thing we can mutually agree on. You can find no matter where you're from. Liars and con artists. And as technology moves forward, it seems these thieves get better. Some con artists do... Small cons, anywhere from pickpocketing to false injuries. Others decide to go above and beyond by committing their lives to running a long con if it means they'll get a huge payout. Others take these cons to the next level by taking advantage of people who truly cannot defend themselves, the dead. These cases may make you want to ensure you have your fares in order because one never knows who will come for you, even post-mortem. So there's no formal record of the world's first scam artist. Like I try to like see how far back I could find it because it's happened since recorded history. Like most likely, but one I found on listfirst.com came from the turn of the century. So that's as far back as I could find one. One that was like worthy of actually having in like detailed information on. This one comes from right around the Great Depression, which makes sense given the desperation at that time. The first case begins in the late 1800s to early 1900s with a family known as the Wendells. Now, before there were the Trumps, there were the Wendells. So that gives you an idea of how big this family's money and like property owning was worth. And they were the wealthiest landlords in New York City. They made so much money from their Manhattan properties, they, they became multimillionaires in the 1800s and the 1900s, That's like early insane. 1900s. They had millions of dollars then. According to the New York Times, the Wendells were the delight of the local papers for as rich as they were, the family, six sisters and a brother, all unmarried, lived together in a shuttered mansion with without electricity on the northwest corner of 5th Avenue and 39th Street. So odd for the wealthiest people at the time, since electricity meant money at this point in the U.S., you can actually afford to have electricity, but you're right. living in a rundown mansion with your siblings, all unmarried. Really strange. Even more curiously, they dressed in grim Victorian garb that had gone out of style half a century earlier. So they're wearing old clothes because they don't even want to spend money on clothing. It was such an oddity to people that tour buses regularly pulled up in front of the House of Mystery. On top of being insanely wealthy, they were also obviously notoriously frugal. They hardly left the house and they had few friends, so saving on parties and social events was easy as opposed to being socialites. As a result of this awkward lifestyle and decision to not flaunt their wealth, none of the Wendells got married or had any children. Unlike the Trumps, however, the Wendells were generous, even soft-hearted landlords. So even though they were odd, they were nice people. I guess it's redeeming because I'm they're a little weird. Yeah. 
They kept a valuable Soho lot vacant so children from neighboring tenements could play on it. They deeply discounted the rents of tenants they liked. Even as garment factories, theaters, and skyscrapers moved in, the windows continued to lease to a lumberyard that took up an entire block on Broadway. So they have this prime, probably the most wealthy block in the world that they can actually sell. See, at first I was going to comment that wealthy people stay wealthy somehow, but they're actually doing really generous shit that's not making them any money. They had that lumberyard and the entire block on Broadway. They only raised the rent once in 67 years, according to the New York Herald Tribune. Meanwhile, our Uh, rent goes up every year. Yep. Despite being introverts, they still had a heart, something you will not find in New York City real estate world today. Certainly never going to exist ever again. Ella was the last Wendell left alive. She strictly spent time with her poodle, Toby, and her servants. And weirdly enough, I looked into it. Every time her poodle, Toby, died, she got another poodle and named it Toby. So there were just multiple Tobys. Multiple Tobys. Okay. Really strange. When Ella died in 1931, her inheritance was a staggering $100 million. Which in 1931 to During now- the Great Depression era. After inflation today, that would be a net worth of about $1.6 billion. Holy shit. Yeah. Ella wrote in her will that the, the fortune should be divided among charities. So all of it went to charity. Some money was given to the servants to take care of her dog. See, it That's goes amazing. so far back. But it goes so far back that even the 30s people left money for their dog. Isn't that crazy? They're just so beloved. Yep. When her death was reported in the newspapers, suddenly... Over 2,300 people claim to be related to her in some way. Oh, yeah. Mm. All of a sudden, there's all these family members out the woodwork. That's my auntie. Mm-hmm. No. With cash like that, it shouldn't have been surprising. But one man traveled to the Americas trying to get his hands on some of that charitable cash. Now that's some determination right there. Oh, yeah. A guy named Thomas Patrick Morris, a house painter, traveled from Scotland. He left Scotland to New York City. To go to court to prove that he was related to Ella. You gotta give him some sort of props for being that determined to do it. Like, I kind of want to just be like, here's a thousand bucks just for the, just for, for being invented. Just for your travels in time. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll cover your travel costs. He provided a forged marriage certificate claiming that he was one of the sons of Ella's brother, John Wendell. I was about to say, if they didn't really have kids, how would he have... Right. Been related. Mind you, none of the Wendell's children got married or had kids because how can you meet someone you're basically shut-ins? So Thomas also wrote a long detailed letter. So this was his explanation, supposedly written by John Wendell, which claimed that Wendell had secretly eloped with Thomas's mother in Scotland. Well, that would be the only way. I just went through puberty right there. That would be the only way in my deepest voice. (laughs) I I was like, you have to be a secret love child because we all know that they didn't get married. Please. But like, how would you even have had a love child if they didn't leave to go anywhere? You still would have had to leave to meet someone in Scotland. And then you go travel, what, by like boat for uh, seven days in like Victorian garb. And then you go and knock up some woman. In Scotland. Like, how would you have made it all the way to Scotland when you didn't even leave your place in New York? Like, I don't understand. But to top this off, weirdly enough, Thomas looked almost exactly like John Wendell. That's creepy. It, so it wouldn't have been hard for him to for them to imagine them as father and son. Like, they really did have striking resemblance. If he really was a Wendell descendant, Thomas would have basically become a very wealthy man. Imagine all of a sudden you're related to someone and you have a billion dollars. However, the lawyer defending Ella's estate did some research in Scotland. He found the request for the forged marriage certificate, and it was clearly written in Thomas's own handwriting. Well, that was stupid. You're supposed to have somebody else write it. The same lawyer also found records from the 
family business proving that John Wendell was in New York City during the time that he supposedly was falling in love and eloping in Scotland. You didn't do a good job, Tom. Yeah, not at all. Once all of Thomas's lies were obviously revealed, he was arrested for, you guessed it, fraud. Oh, shit. <laughs> that was the first case of the Wendells, which I was super fascinated to read. I had no idea they were like... I didn't even know the Wendells existed. Pre-Trump people, but nice versions of that. It's weird because you don't really hear about them, and I feel like you should. Yeah, but it was 1900. No one cares anymore about that time period. But I found it fascinating. And they also don't care about rich people who leave their money to charity. That's you so just want to hear about the ones that are still rich 300 years later. Yeah, so you can just envy them. It's, it's a strange dichotomy, you're right. The next case, one career that is constantly filled with rejection and can be a cruel mistress is writing. Sometimes... When new writers get multiple rejections from publishers, it can seem like they'll never get a book deal, and that hasn't changed. In fact, some can argue it's harder now that because anyone can get published everywhere, it seems people have to add a spin or flair of some type to really make their book stand out. Because you can just drop any crap on Amazon. You can literally just, I can, yeah, I can write something tomorrow and have Amazon sell it and say that I'm a writer. I'm a writer. And as crazy as it sounds, multiple people in the early 1900s claimed that they communicated with famous dead authors via Ouija board. We're we're bringing Ouija board into this. What do we say about Ouija boards? Like... Mm-hmm. People, they're just never going to learn. One of these so-called liars was Emily Grant Hutchins. So Emily Grant Hutchins was born as Emily Rosalie Schmidt in Hannibal, Missouri on January 30th, 1870s. See, she already lying. Her name isn't even the same. At some point in her life, she was hit hard with a writer's bug and gained moderate local su- success. A biography of her appeared in a reference book, Notable Women of St. Louis, edited and published by Mrs. Charles P. Johnson, 1914, which stated, quote, Emily Grant Hudgens has gained a wide reputation because of her meritorious work for newspapers and magazines. She is a regular writer for the magazine section of the Sunday Globe Democrat, having filled this position for 12 years. Usually her articles are signed with only her initials EGH. She was the, quote, mysterious woman about town published in that paper for four years. There was considerable speculation as to the identity of the writer, but this is not disclosed until having the articles after the articles were discontinued. Following this, she wrote the Saturday Dinner Sketches using the name Frank Harwin. So I know it sounds strange to people, but many women write under male names or with initials. Especially a long time ago because they knew they wouldn't be published. But think about it even now. Hello, J.K. Rowling and V.C. Andrews. Like women still do it because it's women are instantly criticized as writers before you even read their work. It does happen. Women tend to master names to get a fair shot. Sadly, that's the way it's been for women. Anyway, Emily Hudgens and her husband Edwin apparently made their first acquaintance with the world-famous Mark Twain when he visited St. Louis, Missouri in June 1902. Did they really? Yeah, so they actually met, and Twain addressed the Art Students Association at a luncheon in his honor on June 7th, 1902 in the Old Museum of Fine Arts. So she's already kind of author in the local paper. People know her around locally. So she's got some talent where people are writing about her enough, you know. So she's gained some kind of moderate local success. But I'm sure, like any writer, they want to go national, if not international. So there are confirmations of two letters Mark Twain had written to Emily Hudgens and her husband. So there's actual proof that they at least became friendly with each other. Clemens, Mark Twain's real name, wrote the couple at least twice. The first letter is a thank you note to Edwin Hudgens providing a text of the speech that day. I guess Emily's husband wrote down, so he just like wrote him like a thank you note being civil. It was confirmed from historians that Emily received two responses from um, Samuel Clemens. 
that bordered on friendly camaraderie. With the first letter, you get the sense of the famous author, like his sense of humor, because the letter that she wrote, Clemens wrote, idiot, preserve this. So he (laughs) really thought that it was worthy of keeping because like he really responded really well to these people that he had met. Proves that at least there was a cordial relationship. There is some evidence to back up. She even mentioned a book in her letter about um, a book she had written about the Civil War when she was 20, but was told, quote, that I was too young to write a novel of which would not be ashamed of 30, end quote, whatever the hell that means. So basically saying oh, she was, does that mean? basically they're saying she's too young to write a Civil War book and she's a woman. I was going to say, I'm like, or maybe you're just too woman to write a Civil War mm-hmm. book. But after these letters, no more communication has been found. So it was kind of like a cordial thing and it was over. Eight years after this meet between the two authors, Samuel Clemens, pen name Mark Twain, died on April 21st, 1910. Seven years after his demise in 1917, Emily Hudgens wrote a book called Jap Heron, a a novel written from the Ouija board. She made a bold claim that the ghost of famous author Mark Twain himself was speaking to her and had asked her to dictate a new novel from Beyond the Grave. This was a sensational claim that immediately drew interest. According to Apple Books website, quote, Jap Heron was purported to be one of the three lost novels of Mark Twain, delivered by mortal scribe Mrs. Emily Grant Hudgens. According to the author's intro, over several months, Samuel L. Clemens, Mark Twain's ghost, delivered a message specifically for Hudgens to edit into a story all via a medium's Ouija board. Hudgens and her husband painstakingly took down every letter the planchette directed them to, end quote. However, Twain's Ghosts seems to have lost touch in his afterlife because the New York Times gave the book scathing reviews. They also joked that Twain's ghost should appear in court via the Ouija board to defend himself. So that's how much they just ripped this book to shreds. The owner of Mark Twain's intellectual properties rights and Twain's daughter sued Emily's publisher, who was forced to stop printing and selling new copies of the novel. Although the book was not considered to be a huge success, Emily still got her book reviewed in the New York Times and she was still able to make money from controversy that surrounded the book though I could not find how much she really made. There wasn't a definitive number. Hudgens, as mentioned before, was considered a fairly accomplished journalist, was then skewered for her desperate attempts to gain fame. One introduction stated, quote, surprisingly true, the voice of Twain, Hudgens was either a gifted charlatan or a truthful telepath. You read it and decide. So there was one review that was kind of like, hey, this is possibly Mark Twain. She didn't have a lot of people on her side, but you'll see the occasional people saying it's pretty good. You can also, if you're interested, you can Google the book for free. I will Google the book for free. Thank you. I read a few lines and let me tell you, if she did in fact get that book from a Ouija board, it was an entity masking as Mark Twain. I did not get the impression that it was Mark Twain. Maybe he lost his touch when he lost his flesh. That's what a bunch of people were saying, that he should come and sue her because it was that bad. So, I mean, it's up to you. You guys decide. I'm no Mark Twain historian by any capacity. So, but from what I was reading, this didn't seem like what I remember reading from him. That's just my personal opinion. We'll try to put the book up on the website and Instagram. We'll put the, the link of, of the book in the show notes. So if you guys are interested, yeah. kind of check it out. I kind of, I just want to read a couple lines. See, what... uh, That's literally what I did. I was like, <laughs> eh, I'm not really getting that vibe, but that was just me. We've all heard or experienced horror stories regarding the elderly. And some people managed to make a huge income grifting off little old ladies and men. And one of these two p- cases I'll talk about when one lady is Carol Cody. This con woman began in 1988. Carol Cody had a licensed elder care facility in her home in Cottage Grove, Oregon, which essentially means she's allowed to have elderly people in her care at her house. That's that's what you're allowed to do. When social services got wind that her patients were dying a little too quickly, which I'm like, what does that mean? 
Is it like a time frame that isn't strange? Yeah, exactly. They suspected that the patients might be being neglected. Like they were like, okay, this is kind of strange. However, by the time someone got to the house, it was 1994. So she's been doing this since 1988. Like that's a good stretch of time where someone, the, the pinging should have gone off a little sooner than my opinion. Social services eventually paid her house a visit. They found the entire house so dirty that it was deemed un, like completely unfit for the elder care. Like they were like, no way, this is filthy. Probably not fit for anybody's care. And then to top off the unsanitary standards, Carol had a pet monkey. Why? Which made the place even more disgusting. Think about what monkeys do. They're not intended to live indoors. Like, sorry, this is that's disgusting. Carol's caretaker license was obviously revoked. Obviously. I, I would hope so. The social security did not catch on at this stage in their investigation, but Carol had been stealing cash from every patient who entered her home. That's horrible. So you're already mistreating them and you're going to steal their cash too? You're making them live in unsanitary conditions. You have a, like a weird exotic animal in your home and you're stealing people's money. Like that's really fucked up. So she did these small cons, if you will. Once she was out of a job, Carol started volunteering at nursing home. How was she still able to get a job around anyone? No, she volunteered. So technically, like, she didn't do anything wrong. She was volunteering her time. This ended up just being her kind of skimming around for her next con because there she met and seduced an elderly disabled man. (sighs) We only know him as MB because they wouldn't release his name, but she convinced MB into marrying her. Oh, God. So she spent her time just conning this little old man. Social security income from her new husband was not enough to stop Carol's greedy hands. So she bought in a new patient to live with her and her elderly husband. So now she's taking care of her elderly husband and another man. John H. Arnold was the other patient and he was an elder orphan who had never married or had any children. So like he's the prime target because. Right. There's nobody to defend him. Exactly. She convinced him to leave the nursing home she volunteered at and moved her into her elder care facility. John Arnold died in 1996 at 76 years old. Unlike most decent humans, instead of calling the authorities and gave him to give him a proper burial, so like if there's no evidence that she actually killed him, he did die, but she simply buried his body on her mother's land. That's horrible. And the more fucked up part about what happened when she buried him where she did was since she didn't have her caretaker's license anymore, she was no longer getting checkups from social services so she could get away with it. Oh, so she would, so nobody was ever going to find, literally nobody was ever going to find out. Yeah. Cause it was only one guy. So it's not like she had a bunch of people and she had a license. She just conned this guy into moving in with wow. her and no one was ever going to know because who's following up with an old man who was an orphan, never had kids. It's really sad. She explained to her elder, elderly husband that John had moved away. So she tried to lie to her husband and said, oh, no, he's fine. He moved out. So, so this other man who obviously needed help just up and moved away. That's what she's claiming. Once her husband, MD, realized how crazy and abusive she actually was, he divorced her and managed to escape what would have probably been, at the very least, a fraud situation. Props to him. He got out of there. Yep. It goes to show you, you shouldn't underestimate people. People can see through a lot of things. Yeah, someone's always going to see through your crazy. As we mentioned, John Arnold, the guy who had died and she buried, had no surviving family members. After he died, his retirement payments continued flowing into his bank account, retirement savings, investments. So she was still making money, basically. Cody regularly withdrew the funds by forging his names on checks and depositing the money into her own account. Of course. Stealing from the dead. She ended up stealing a total of... $203,528 for 16 years. And nobody caught on. Before investigators caught on to the scam in 2013. 
So the guy died in 1996, and she collected money all the way till 2013. And the home she was she had had was surrendered to the government, which they planned to help like pay to satisfy the required restitution payments. But after all this, she was only sentenced to four years in federal That's prison. That's it? Meaning she's out and... She's out. She's out and about. Yeah, trying to find some lonely old man for more moolah to take in even once he's technically gone. She could still do it again. Who's going to Who's gonna be like... Because people don't think about the elderly. At least in this country, it's really fucked up. Yeah, in other, in other countries and other cultures there, they take care of the elderly. It's like part of the family dynamic that either the oldest or the youngest takes care of the elderly parents or the grandparents. It's just here that, like, they don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. So the final case is awful as well because this person should have been the very last person this con artist targeted, and it was his very own mother. Oh, come Your own mom? Your own mom, bro. I was like, yo, that's speckless, truly. That's, that's right? some truly evil shit because mm-hmm. you're supposed to at least do it to a stranger. Brian Adams was a 56-year-old unemployed man, shocking, oh, unemployed man. I'm so shocked. living with his elderly mother, Janelle, and his son in Green Coast Springs, Florida. Of course it's Florida! They were all living on Janelle's social security checks and her pension each month. So she was taking care of her grown-ass old man's son and his son in their home. Talk about taking advantage. This woman is elderly, is getting help from the government, you're jobless. You move and in her with pension. her, mm-hmm. and you're just gonna live off of her pension and her gut. Yes, what a fuck. Yep. In 2014, Brian discovered that his mother had died from natural causes. So she, unfortunately, she passed away then. Well, at least it was from natural causes, because I thought you were gonna tell me he killed his mom, and I'm like, oof, no. No, that's that's what's interesting about people that profit from the dead. They don't actually kill anyone. They just take advantage. They just take of the advantage situation. of the fact that the person died. Definitely. If they reported Janelle's death, it would mean that Brian and his son had no money to live See, on. I was just about to mention that because when my mother passed the funeral home is the one that alerted the government, which is why her social security immediately stopped coming. So I'm like, how do these people get away with it? Because I know personally from my experience, like quickly my mom's social security stopped coming and we actually have to give back the stimulus that she got. I find it crazy that people were able to collect shit for fucking years, but it's because they're not reporting the deaths. Yeah, exactly. You reported it. He convinced his son to help him carry Janelle's corpse to the backyard, dig a deep hole, and bury her there. That, see, that's that's another level of fuckery. Like, you want to do some dirty-ass shit? You're going to convince your son to help you do that to his grandmother? Like, it's not, it's not bad enough what you're doing. Authorities later discovered that between July 2014 and about June 2015, Adams took his mother's $576.76 pension check she received from Anheuser-Busch, a.k.a. Bud Light, Budweiser, that was deposited monthly into an account at the Citizens National Bank of Quitman. Each month, the money continued to come in. You know, that's not even a large sum of money for you to even be doing that. You're doing that for $576. Exactly. But that goes to show you, like, you're un- he doesn't want to work. Right, like, if he really, like, you just didn't want to find a job. He's not disabled. He's not anything. He's just a just lazy, lazy asshole who wants to collect his mother's money and live in her house for free. So every month the money continued to come in at that point. Brian deposited the checks into Janelle's account and then transferred all the money into his name. This went on for, like I said, about a year. year. And he collected a total of $35,345. So it doesn't seem like much, but over a year plus, that's a salary. It's a decent amount, yeah. And he's not paying rent. So it's all going to whatever. Of all the people that caught on to him, it was actually Brian's daughter, Brittany. I was about to say, nobody, like, didn't see his mom and was like, where's grandma? Like, someone eventually... This isn't someone that has no family. She obviously has family. 
Right. And she confronted her father on his ability to continue to have money without a job. She was like, dude, how are you doing this? Another thing, like, did you think nobody would notice that you're paying for shit without working? Exactly. She's the one that kind of caught on. He told her a secret of how he was collecting the stolen checks. So he just admitted to his own daughter. At least he didn't try to lie to her, too. But funny enough, Brittany didn't waste any time calling the popo because she reported her father because he had already had a past criminal record. So she's like, dude, you're a fucked up guy. Like, I'm not doing this. Adams ended up pleading guilty to stealing government property and aggravated identity theft. Brian Adams of Jacksonville faced a maximum of 12 years in prison, including the mandatory two-year sentence for aggravated identity theft, but he technically spent one year in prison and was released what? in 2016. That's fucking insane. That's that's even worse. Like, yeah. after everything that happens, then you only go to jail for a year for doing this to your mother? Like, what is wrong? You collected wrong? 35 grand for one year doing nothing, then you get thrown into prison where your meals are taken care of for a year. So it's like, I know people who have done absolutely... Almost nothing and been in jail longer. Longer. Exactly. I think these elder cases are so sad that you can hide someone's death, steal money, and barely get any time. Maybe this is why the elderly are such targets. Like Maybe this is why people do this type of crime because exactly. they figure that even if they get caught, oh, fuck, I'll do a year. A year is not that long. Yeah. Even that woman, she she collected for, what, 16 years? She collected she- for 16 and only did four. So really, you, you did fine. Yeah. They Like, my whole thing is if they asked you to give the money back, that'd be one thing. But I don't even know what they do. Like, do they make you try to pay that money back? Or is it just like whatever There's you restitution. Took it? So like, you have to eventually make payments to the government. But if you were somebody that was unemployed, and then you became a con man, you got caught as a convict, are you ever really going to pay it back? Right. That's what I don't understand. Like, what do they expect from these people? At least with Carol Cody, they got her house so they can pay that back. Right. But with him, he he just he did a year in jail and that was it. Yeah. And it was his mother's property. It's not like they can. It's not like they're going to, like, wipe his debt because of his mother's house. So I don't even know. It's really fucked up. But whatever you call it, a con game, a con, a scam, a grift, a hustle, a bunco, apparently is one, a swindle, a bunco, a flim flam, a gaffle or a bamboozle. (laughs) Someone is always the stooge, sometimes even the dearly departed. This is all very fucked up and it really makes this is why this is why I want to have no attachments when I die because none of y'all motherfuckers are getting anything out of me. I'm also broke, so really you could say I got nothing for you, baby. You couldn't do any of this shit to me if I were to die right now. If I die today, I told Charlie, good luck with my student loans. Right? If you if I die today, have fun paying off all my debt and taking care of Lena. Please, by all means, go ahead. You could take you could take the money. Sometimes it's good being broke. This is why. This is why it's. But it also shows you like you really have to set yourself up because some people. That woman was it was five hundred dollars a month. It's not like that was that much money, like you said. But lo and behold, someone is still trying to take advantage of. But it also goes to show you you can't trust anybody, not even your fucking kids. That's why I'm not having any. Can't trust anybody. That was that was nuts, Christy. Death profiting off dead people. Here's Christy uh, making my uh, trust issues even worse. I'm going to interrogate Ryan later. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who, Who does, does that? that? I don't, I'm not even going to describe. I'm just going to read you okay. the headline right Let's off. do it. Oklahoma places 2.1 million bounty on Bigfoot's head. Wow, that's a lot of investment. Tourism officials in Oklahoma hoping this generates some buzz because, you know, who goes to Oklahoma? Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt. Um, I don't plan on going to Oklahoma and you telling me the Bigfoot is there and like putting a bounty on his head <laughs> is not going to make me go to Oklahoma, but whatever. I'm sure somebody will. They hoping this generates some buzz, say Bigfoot needs to be captured unharmed, stressing bounty hunters can't break any laws during the hunt. So you put in this big ass bounty on Bigfoot's head and then you're like, don't harm him. He's Bigfoot. So what are you supposed to do? Use a tranquilizer, like a horse tranquilizer? Like, what are you I supposed to do for Bigfoot? 
you're, you're not only supposed to return them unharmed, but you're not supposed to break any laws. So it's according to what you know about Bigfoot. They're like twice to three right. times the size of a human. So you what do you wrestle it to the ground, pin it down and then drag it? What are you supposed to do? I don't understand what their plan is. Without breaking any laws. Are there Bigfoot laws? There, I guess there's laws with hunting. Oh, that makes sense. So they said, so they said that they can't break any laws during the hunt. So like, I guess they can't like maybe use a, a drug or something they're not supposed to have or something. But I'm like, if you want us to take it unharmed, we're going to have to use some sort of tranquilizer. And if we can't have the tranquilizer, where do you want me to get it from? So only vet, vets can go crazy. This is like a transcript. Um, I guess it was like a news story. And it says, good morning. I'm Scott Dietro. Need a quick two million? You could try the lottery. Maybe invest in Bitcoin or head to Oklahoma and capture Bigfoot. They would place the bounty on Bigfoot's head there. 2.1 million, but some rules. You can't bring Bigfoot in cold. Oklahoma tourism officials hoping to generate some buzz say Bigfoot needs to be captured in harm and stress bounty hunters can't break any laws. Good luck. And that was basically the news story. That's all we have. Come to Oklahoma, find Bigfoot unharmed, and you get two point one million. And my thing is, what are they going to do with Bigfoot after they ca- if they if they actually do capture a Bigfoot? What are they going to do? My whole thing is, yeah. So if you don't want him dead and you want him alive, you think you're going to what interrogate him? You're going to investigate him? You're going to ask him some questions? Put him in a zoo? What are you What are you planning on doing? What are you gonna, What are you going to do with a Bigfoot? What you're going to make and, millions and billions of dollars finding the first Bigfoot in the state of Oklahoma, and that'll become the the Bigfoot state? Is that the plan? Right. Are you just going to like be like a freak show? People can like pay to come see Bigfoot. And I'm just have a really big question. Like, where are you getting the $2.1 million? Or like, you're taking it out of taxpayers' money because I would be really annoyed if I paid taxes and it went to like giving someone money for finding Bigfoot. And it's like, if you have $2.1 million, why don't you invest it back into Oklahoma? You're going to give it to some random person who comes and visits Oklahoma and unharms Bigfoot? Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And like, does Bigfoot read the news? Because what if he finds out about this and he's like, well, I'm really not going to come out now because he's already like escaped people. So now if Bigfoot can read or hear the news... He's definitely like. What if he's not, like? Well, he's you think you think Bigfoot's Oklahoma. literate? I mean, apparently they think that Bigfoot can be captured in harm, so I guess he could be literate too. So he's if Bigfoot's listening, run from Oklahoma, just run. I can't. I really. This sounds can't. like something Florida would do. It really does. It has a tinge of Florida to it. Let's face the reality: most of the United States is really strange. Everyone that listens to our podcast from a different country says our country is crazy. After doing three seasons of this podcast. We're fucking crazy. Why not add a bounty on Bigfoot's head? Why not? Let's go for it. I just want to know why they think Bigfoot's in Oklahoma also, because I've heard of him in like other places. What makes you think he's in Oklahoma? Is he just like stopping by? Because he's been in other states. Does he? He just travels. He takes his summers there. He's He's a nomad. He just travels along. That's like his summer. It is. It's his summer home. Well, it's not anymore. You just put a $2.1 million bounty on his head. And what are you going to do if Bigfoot is real and kills somebody who's trying to capture him unharmed? What are you going to do with that person? You better give their family $2.1 million. That's crazy. I didn't even think about that. That's so true. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I did. It's something we have never talked about before, which is cool. I like that in season three, we still have things that we have never, ever talked about. That's two weeks in a row. That was awesome. I really appreciate it. Um, you guys know the normal like, subscribe, buy some merch. Please support our podcast. But most importantly, stay weird, Americas. Bye. Bye. Catch Bigfoot. Woo.